Hello and welcome to episode 2 of What's Out There. I'm your host, Grim Webster, and before we start, I'd like to thank everyone for helping make episode 1 a huge success. We got over 200 hits in just two weeks on that one, and I'm very happy about that. Also, a quick update. Uh, in October, I'm going to be in Bardstown, Kentucky for a few days. So anybody who's familiar with, lives in, is from, or has been to Bardstown, if there's anything paranormal or supernatural or anything just you recommend that I see, let me know, because in my off time while I'm there, I will be looking... So any heads up is greatly appreciated. You can drop me a line at the blog site, by email, Facebook. You get the point, yada, yada, yada. Now let's go ahead and move on into some news. Asteroid 2013 RS-43 flew by the Earth at a distance of 1.1 million kilometers on Friday the 13th, September 2013. The asteroid presented little danger, as at 18 meters across it would have been highly unlikely to make it through the Earth's atmosphere intact if it had hit. 2013 RS-43 was only discovered a few days before passing the Earth. The same asteroid is believed to have come within 50 kilometers of Earth in 2004, and will come within 8.8 million kilometers in 2020. Now the scary thing is, this thing has passed us before, and they didn't know it passed us until after it passed us this year. Well, that's a little frightening to me, but at the same time, it's comforting that they're seeing things they didn't see before. That shows our technology is improving, but also with improved technology, we are aware of what other dangers are out there. Moving on, Dakabo Eba, I'm not 100% sure that I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Dakabo Eba, a man in Ethiopia, is claiming to be around 160 years old. Determining his age would be nearly impossible since Ethiopian births are performed in a home ritual. Many do not own birth certificates. At first glance, he appears to be maybe 60 years old. However, his recollection of local history spans far beyond that. Eba claims to have lived under at least seven Ethiopian rulers and can remember when Italy first invaded Ethiopia. Now, that was in 1895. Medical tests are in the works to test his claims. Now, if you go to the blog site, you will see a picture, and I'll have it linked up. You'll see a picture of him, and he looks to be about 60. Now... If he is 160, he looks really good for 160. And hopefully one day when I'm 160, I will look as good as well. Now, a multinational terror drill is scheduled to take place in the coming months that supposedly aims to assess, test, and validate vital infrastructure resources should they come under an unlikely cyber attack. According to the New York Times, thousands of utility workers, business executives, National Guard officers, FBI anti-terrorism experts, and officials from government agencies in the United States, Canada, and Mexico are preparing for an emergency drill in November that will simulate physical attacks and cyber attacks that could take down large sections of the power grid. Now, for those of you that don't understand all that babble I just spit at you, that basically means that in November they are going to shut down the power grid to simulate an attack to see basically how all the government agencies deal with it. So in November, we're going to lose power. And this brings me to my random question. 
Now, I've heard people concerned that this may lead to somebody taking advantage of the situation, maybe terrorists, maybe even the government itself, who may initiate a false flag attack. Now, I'm not one to cry wolf, and I'm not trying to instigate a panic, and I'm not one of those guys that goes all chicken little and says the sky is falling, blah, blah, blah. But whether or not anything happens, you have to remember how much of our lives are centered around electricity. And in November, when they shut it off, are we going to be too vulnerable? And here's another thing to think about. The Comet Ison. Right around the time that they're going to shut down the electricity is when the Comet Ison is going to be coming around the sun, and it's going to be the brightest that it's going to be. Maybe that has something to do with it, too. Maybe not. Could be a coincidence. But in the words of George Norrie, there's no such thing as a coincidence. Okay, today I'd like to talk to you about spontaneous human combustion. Now, the first known account of spontaneous human combustion came from the Danish anatomist Thomas Bartolin in 1663, who described how a woman in Paris went up in ashes and smoke while she was sleeping. The straw mattress on which she slept was unmarred by the fire. The hundreds of spontaneous human combustion accounts since that time have followed a similar pattern. The victim is almost completely consumed, usually inside their home, and the coroner at the scene have sometimes noted a sweet, smoky smell in the room where the incident occurred. Also, it's usually the torso that's burned up and the limbs are often left behind. In 1938, a 22-year-old woman named Phyllis Newcomb was leaving a dance at the Shire Hall in Chelmsford, England. As she descended the staircase of the hall, her dress suddenly caught fire with no apparent cause. She ran back into the ballroom where she collapsed. Several people rushed her aid, but she later died in the hospital. Although the theory was that Newcomb's dress had been ignited by a cigarette or a lit match thrown from the stairwell, no evidence of either was ever found. In 1951, a 67-year-old widow named Mary Reeser was at home in St. Petersburg, Florida. On the morning of July 2nd, a neighbor discovered that Mary's front door was hot. When she broke into the apartment with the help of two workmen, they found Mary in an easy chair with a black circle around her. Her head had been burnt down to the size of a teacup. The only other parts of her that remained were part of her backbone and part of her left foot. Other than Mary's charred remains, there was very little evidence of fire in her apartment, but the police report cited a dropped cigarette which ignited Miss Reeser's highly flammable rayon acetate nightgown. Now, not all cases involve the victim bursting into flames. Some develop strange burns or emanate smoke from their body, and not every person who has caught fire has died. A small percentage of people have actually survived. Now, there's only one case that actually has a witness. That was in 1982 when a mentally handicapped woman named Jean Lucille Jeannie Saffin was sitting with her 82-year-old father at their home in Edmonton. That's in North London, by the way. According to her father, a flash of light caught his eye. When he turned his head, he saw his daughter's upper body was enveloped in flames. Mr. Saffin and his son-in-law, Donald Carroll, managed to put out the blaze, but Jeannie died of her third-degree burns about a week after entering the hospital. According to Carol, the flames were coming out of her mouth like a dragon, and they were making roaring noises. There was no smoke or fire damage in the room, and some have wondered if an ember from her father's pipe actually ignited her clothing. 
Now, the first mention of spontaneous human combustion in the history books is Paulinus Vorstius, an Italian knight in the late 1400s. He consumed two ladles of very strong wine one night. People say he immediately started vomiting flames, and then he burst into flames entirely. But no one else seemed to have any problem with the wine. Countess Cornelia de Bondi, who lived in the 1700s, was found halfway between her bed and her window one morning with everything except her lower legs and three fingers burned. She had risen from her bed to open the window in the middle of the night, but combusted before she could reach the window. Nicole Millet, the wife of a Parisian innkeeper in 1725, was found after her husband roused the entire inn when he smelled smoke. What was left of her was in the kitchen, almost completely reduced to ash, with the wooden utensils around her unburned. Her husband was tried and found guilty of murder. On appeal, though, he used a spontaneous human combustion defense and was exonerated. Nicole's death was found to be due to a visitation from God. A spontaneous human combustion has seen an influx of supporters in recent years. In 2011, for example, an Irish coroner listed spontaneous human combustion as the cause of death for an Irishman who was discovered in cinders despite no apparent source of fire. Now, a little side note here. Isn't there a, a pretty proliferate criminal underground in Ireland? Maybe they may want to look in that direction first. Moving on. Now, just recently, doctors in India have ruled out spontaneous human combustion after a baby boy apparently burst into flames for a fourth time. The family claims that their child named Raoul has spontaneously combusted four times, starting when he was just nine days old. And the mother claims that she found the baby with flames on his belly and right knee, and her husband rushed in with a towel to put them out. At this point, the couple says they've been kicked out of their village due to fear that they pose a fire hazard forcing the small family to take refuge in a nearby temple. However, tests to determine whether the baby emits inflammable gases that could be triggering combustion have all returned normal, prompting doctors to rule it out. According to the Times of India, the Indian Council for Child Welfare are not investigating the case, but are providing counseling for the parents and providing medical attention and additional protection for the baby, but only after the parents' approval. Now, I don't want to get too far off topic here, but sadly, this sounds less like a case of spontaneous human combustion and more like a case of child abuse. And, you know, it it's sad to say, but child abuse does happen and it does happen all over the world. And the fact that the Indian Council for Child Welfare is not investigating the case is kind of troubling to me. But once again, I'm not in India and I don't know how things go there. So what causes spontaneous human combustion? Well, the discovery of phosphorus in human bones once prompted the theory that the flame came from inside of us. But in the mid-19th century, medical scientists discovered the combustibility of body fat. Now, this prompted the commonly used wick effect theory that states a body becomes ignited and the fat, which is typically centered around the torso, begins to burn. The victim's clothing then soaks up the liquefied body fat and acts like a wick that keeps the body burning. Now, that explains nearly every issue a person could raise about spontaneous human combustion. And it's the best explanation so far, for sure. Except, we've all burned ourselves, and people have caught fire many times. In fact, some people do it for a living in movies, and none of us have combusted. So, how do they ignite? Well, there's a theory for that as well. In 2012, an article published in The New Scientist point to the possibility 
of heightened presence of the chemical acetone in someone's blood as a potential cause of spontaneous human combustion. So there you go. Everything is wrapped up into a pretty little bow. Or is it? What do you think about spontaneous human combustion? Is it real? Is it fake? Is it a bunch of crazy people telling stories? I'll leave it up to you to decide. Alright, we're at that point in the show again where it's time for our user-submitted experience. This one also comes from Reddit. And this user would also like to remain anonymous, and of course, I will respect their wishes. Now, I chose this one because, unlike the last one, this one's pretty open-ended. The last one was a great story with a great message and had a nice little wrap-up, and it was great, don't get me wrong. But this one, this one's a little different. This one has no wrap-up, this one has no message, and in fact, the submitter is actually still searching for answers. And after reading the story myself... I'd like some answers, too. So go ahead and listen to the story read by yours truly in my sultry, supple voice. And if you've got any ideas, any answers, any suggestions, drop me a line, and I will do my best to get them to the submitter, because I know both of us would like to know what's going on. This is something I had experienced serving a mission in Mexico for my church. I wanted to see if anyone else had any similar experiences. One day, my missionary companion and I were going about our day like normal. We had a couple of appointments with people who wanted to hear more about our message, and we visited with them all. We ate lunch with a family from our church that lived in the area, then we spent the rest of the day searching for more people to teach. We usually do this until about 9 or 9.30 when we return home, and then we get ready for bed at 10.30. This night, I had some trouble sleeping. At the time, we were living in a bottom-floor apartment of a huge complex. We didn't have any curtains, so we had to hang blankets over the windows to keep most of the outside lights out. The blanket we had didn't cover up the whole window, so there was a crack of sky I could see from my bed. Whenever I woke up, I would look out this crack so I could know what time it was by how light it was. This particular night, I was waking up constantly with goosebumps. I didn't think anything of it, though, and went back to sleep. One time I woke up and looked out the crack to see the moon in the sky. I watched the moon until I fell asleep again. This next time I woke up was when my day became abnormal. I woke up and realized the moon's light had shifted to where I would not be able to see it anymore. But being a person fascinated with space, I looked out the crack to see if I could see any stars. Instead, I saw a gray face looking at me through the window. I wasn't sure if the face had features or not because it was dark outside. As soon as I looked at it, It left the window and went away. I was really creeped out, but eventually fell back asleep thinking it was insomnia or something. As missionaries, our wake-up time is 6.30. My alarm went off, and the second I hit snooze, my mission president called me. The mission president is a guy who takes care of and oversees a big group of missionaries. I answered, and he asked if my companion and I were okay. I assured him we were, and asked why he was calling. I had forgotten about the face at the time. He responded by saying he just wanted to ask a couple questions about our day yesterday, to which he started to ask for every detail. Who we visited, where we went, who we ate with, what we did each hour of the day until we came home. If we were being obedient to the rules and the commandments, etc. 
After I'd given him all this information, he seemed pleased, but a little uneasy. After expressing appreciation for being great missionaries, he paused for a minute and then asked, Was it gray or black? Shocked by this question, because the memory of last night just came back to me at that moment, I told him that it was gray. He seemed relieved and told us to continue working hard and being obedient. I never saw the gray face again, but I always wondered what it was and what it would have meant if it was black. Okay, we are rapidly approaching the end of the show, and that brings us to this week's interesting person. Now, before I get to this week's interesting person, I'd like to make a correction about last week's interesting person. Now, if you'll remember last week, it was Andrew Basiago who claimed to be part of a government program that sent him to Mars a few times. Now, at the end of the report, I said that there were four other people who claimed to be part of the Jump Room program. One of those people was Arthur Neumann. Now, it has been brought to my attention that while both Mr. Basiago and Mr. Neumann both claim to have been part of a government agency or program that has sent them to Mars on multiple occasions, Mr. Neumann is in no way, shape, or form associated with Mr. Basiago. And that is the extent of my correction. Now, moving on to this week's interesting person, it's Madman Mike Markham, the time traveler. Now, the first time I heard about Madman Mike was in What Lurks Beyond, The Paranormal in Your Backyard, which is a book by Jason Ophit. Here's what's interesting about Mike. In 1995, Mike Markham, who was 21 at the time, attempted to build a Jacob's Ladder. Now, if you don't know what a Jacob's Ladder is... I'm sure you've seen the clips from the old Frankenstein movies. It's got the two metal rods and the spark moving up between them constantly. It just keeps moving upward and upward and upward. That's a Jacob's Ladder. Now, he was trying to build a Jacob's Ladder by winding his own transformer, which means he created his own transformer, wound the coils himself. You get the point. Now, in order to lower the resistance in the air, he modified a laser from a CD player. Once he applied the laser, he noticed that the heat signature, you know, the wavy air at the top of a flame, or like uh, the wavy air in a hot desert, that's the heat signature. Now he noticed the heat signature was circular, like a vortex, instead of vertical waviness. Now on a whim, he tossed a screw into that vortex, and the screw disappeared for about half a second before it reappeared. Now from this, he deduced that the screw probably time-traveled for about half a second. Now, after the laser overloaded and burn up, it occurred to him that half a second wasn't enough, and that more power would increase the amount of time that an object would travel. So, in an attempt to build a bigger Jacob's Ladder, Mike stole six large transformers from a substation. Now, he hooked the smallest one up to two four-foot-long rods on his porch, and when he fired it up, he caused brownouts all over town. Now, before he could order a bigger laser to reproduce the vortex, the police were called. They were called in a completely unrelated incident. But after they started poking around Markham's house, well, they came back later with a search warrant, and Markham was arrested. Now, when he was released from jail, he was contacted by Art Bell of Coast to Coast AM, and in an interview with Art Bell... Mike tells that he's planning another experiment 
but he doesn't have the parts or the money. At the end of the show, Mike gives out his phone number and receives non-stop calls for three days. The interview was very helpful for Mike because many listeners helped him with ideas, funding, and parts. He even got a warehouse to work in. And that's pretty cool. Now, in another interview with Art Bell later, he explained that after he got help from the listeners, his next Time Machine project was much larger and more powerful than the original. Instead of using a CD laser, Mike used rotating magnetic fields just like they used in the Philadelphia Experiment. Now, if you don't know what the Philadelphia Experiment is, you may want to go ahead and hit Dr. Google to find out all the juicy details there. I'll give you a little information. The government was working on invisibility and, well, things got weird. I'll leave the rest up to you and maybe I'll cover it in another show. Now, he was using rotating magnetic fields like they did in the Philadelphia Experiment. His reasoning was that rotating magnetic fields are more efficient. Now, Art requested that Mike notify him before he jumps through the vortex so that he could either document the first conclusive proof of time travel or the spectacular exit of a daring madman. Now, according to a 2011 interview with Jason Ofit, who wrote the book I mentioned earlier, after experimenting with the machine in 1998, Mike decided to try it out himself. He jumped through the electric field that he had created and was transported two years into the future and 800 miles away. He was in a field when he regained his senses, but his memory was gone. He ended up in a homeless shelter that night, and eventually most of his memory returned to him. And he worked until he could afford to get back home to his warehouse, and when he arrived at the warehouse, he found it empty. All of his journals, video recordings, documenting his work and experiments, and all of his equipment was gone. Now, he doesn't know what happened to it, or who took it. Now, Mike's last known location is Ohio. I'm not sure where, but I've heard rumors of Cincinnati. Now, if anyone knows where to find Madman Mike Markham the Time Traveler, I'd be very interested in speaking with him. So if you know him, or you know how to reach him, if you've got a Facebook page for him, a phone number for him, anything at all, drop me a line and let me know. And, uh, hey, Mike, if you're listening, get a hold of me. I'd love to speak to you. Now, if anybody's interested in those interviews with Art Bell... I obviously don't have permission to give those to you, but if you're internet savvy, Dr. Google and Nurse YouTube can help you out. Okay, this is the end, and once again, I'd like to thank everybody for helping make the first episode a huge success. And I'd also like to thank you for tuning in to this episode. Now, once again, and I have a feeling that this is going to be a regular thing, if you'd like to be part of the show or you'd like to submit an experience, if you have questions, if you have comments, if you have hate mail, if you have something nice to say, you just feel like stroking my ego, go ahead and go to wotb.blogspot.com. On the left-hand side of the page, you'll find everything you need to contact me. We also have a YouTube page now where I will also be uploading the podcast there. So you'll have three ways to listen to the podcast. You'll have YouTube, you'll have the Flash Player, and you'll have a download link. Now also, under the contacts, you'll see a contact button for Facebook, for Twitter. You'll see submission forms. 
Then under that, there will be a phone number. You can call me anytime and leave a voicemail. You can also text me. There's also a Google Voice number and a Skype button. So feel free in any way to contact me. Like I said, any feedback is appreciated, and I respond to pretty much everything I get. So, until next time, thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Grim Webster. Keep your eyes and your mind open, or you just might miss what's out there.